Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And uh, again, we're doing this old school. No technology, no screen, no points to follow, no scripture. And so you're going to have to take that thing called a Bible, right? Open it up. If you've got an app on your phone, uh, you can do that as well. To Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 today. And I just want to apologize to everybody who's sitting over here. If you're getting this glare off of my head, I apologize. Okay? This morning it was really cold. I had a beanie on, a jacket on. I was like, oh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to pull this off. It's going to be really cold this morning. And now, the sun's baking my skull. But I'll be all right. Romans chapter 4. The title of this morning's message is Reckoned as Righteous, Heirs by Faith. Reckoned as Righteous, Heirs by Faith. This word, reckoned, is not something that uh, is just cleverly made up uh, to serve as a sermon title. It's something that's found in this passage over and over. It's a term that's found in this passage over and over and over. What does it mean? Well, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. And uh, I would invite you to, to follow along with me. And then we're going to um, examine the, the passage in, in God's Word a little bit closer. So starting in verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon man, the man whom God reckons righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Three things we're going to notice from this morning's passage. Uh, the, first, the first section, verses 1 through 8, we learn the orchestration of the reckoning. Of the reckoning. How does it happen? How is it orchestrated? How does it start? Right? And notice what he says. And, of course, he's, for context, for those of you who, who've been here for the last couple of weeks, then you, you know kind of what he's talking about. He's talking about the law. He's, he's talking to a Jewish audience and to a Gentile audience. But he's trying to say to his Jew, Jewish audience, he's trying to say, listen, those of you who are putting all of, your, all of your pride in the law, he's trying to get them to understand that righteousness doesn't come from the law. Right? That, that when you put your faith in Christ, you're saved apart from the law. So the law has a role. Right? It has a specific role. And it's to bear witness of the Savior who's going to come. And who at this point in Romans has already come. But Paul is saying, this is the purpose of God giving the law back in Moses' time. Was to point to the Messiah who would come and who would fulfill the law. And who would be completely righteous. And, and, and you would have to put your faith in him. And so righteousness doesn't come through trying to be morally good or trying to you know, make sure that you tick off all the boxes that the law requires. He says that the law is really a teacher, like a tutor. It teaches us our need for a savior. And it's like a jailer, right? It, 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 it ensnares us. It, it, it jails us in. It closes the bars in our face so that we know, oh, this is my problem. My problem is I'm a sinner. And I cannot save myself. And so I need a savior. And so he says now, he says, okay, so, so what about, we talk a lot about Moses, we talk about the law. He knows that his Jewish audience is very familiar with Moses and the law. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they, they took pride in being experts in the law. As a matter of fact, we learned from the book of Philippians that Paul himself was an expert in the law. He was, he was top of his class. But Paul says, let's rewind a little bit further back before Moses. Okay? Before God ever brought the Hebrews out of Egypt and, and gave them the Ten Commandments, hundreds of years before that, there was this man named Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You may have heard of the song, maybe when you were little or something like that. Right? I'm one of them and so are you. What, what does that mean? Paul's saying, go all the way back to Abraham because this is where... This is where it all started. When God called Abraham out of his homeland at an old age and said, go the direction that I'm telling you to go. Not giving you a map, not telling you what's going to happen when you get there. Leave everything and go. That's it. It's very much like the call to Christ. When Jesus calls us as disciples, he says, follow me. He doesn't tell us what that's going to lead to. He doesn't tell us everything that that's going to cost us. The ups and downs, he just says, follow me, right? And that's what happened with Abraham. And so Paul asks this question in the first section here. He says, what has Abraham found? If Abraham was called by God, and he was, and he was the one to whom these promises had been made, and the generations that come after him, but that happened before the law was ever given, then what is it that Abraham has found? So he asked this question, because Abraham was the founder. And so, verse 2, he says, well, first of all, we know that 
even if he was considered a righteous man, if he's, if he's justified by his works in the eyes of other people, if people looked around and said, you know what, Abraham is the stand-up guy. He's the guy. He's the most righteous person we can find. Paul says he might have something to, to boast about, but not before God. When it comes to his standing before God, Abraham's just like all the rest of us. He's just like the, the greatest Pharisee during Jesus' time. He's just like the, the, the greatest person, the least person. He's just like anybody else. There's nothing different about Abraham. He has nothing to boast about before God. And then he says in verse 3, he asks a great question that every one of us should ask all the time. See what he says? For what does the scripture say? That's a great question. That's a question we should ask whenever we get into theological discussions. Whenever we talk about, you know, ways we think we're supposed to live as Christians. Trying to figure things out. What does the scripture say? Paul points back to the scripture as a whole. Not just to a part of it. Not just to the law. He points to the whole scripture. He says, what does the scripture say? Notice what he says. It says this, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Some of your Bibles might say, and it was credited. Does anybody have that? It was credited to him? Yeah? One over here? Anybody else? It was credited to him as righteousness? Yeah. We understand that in today's time, don't we? You have creditors? <laughs> have you ever been a creditor? Giving somebody a line of credit that maybe they don't deserve. You're, you're basically, to credit someone something is to reckon. That is to, to decide for yourself that they are worthy of something that they may not be worthy of. Right? And so, Paul says, the scripture says about Abraham that he believed, all he did was believe God. He just believed God. And that was credited to him as righteousness. What does it mean to be reckoned? Doug Moose says, the use of the Hebrew construction in Genesis 15.6, that is the verse that Paul is, is harkening back to, shows that the meaning is not that faith is considered the equivalent of righteousness. Do you get that? Faith is not considered the equivalent of righteousness, but rather that God reckoned to Abraham a status that Abraham did not possess, that he didn't have. So it's not as though God said, okay, Abraham, you don't have what it takes. Okay, I was going to call you to something, but you don't have what it takes. Unless you can show me some faith. And Abraham musters up this faith and God says, oh wow, that's, that's really righteous. Good job. That's not what happens. Paul says that's not it at all. God, when God reckons, when he credits, it's all on his good graces. It's a one-way street. It's not a two-way thing. It's all of God. And so, that's what we see. The orchestration of this reckoning is all of God. He orchestrates the whole thing. Martin Luther, the great reformer in the early 16th century, would call this alien righteousness. Alien righteousness is that righteousness that has to originate, has to be orchestrated from outside of us. It doesn't come from within. Today the world tells you, the world tells me, just look within your heart. Look deep within, you know, and there's goodness there. You just have to do a lot of introspection. 
That's not what the gospel says. The, the gospel says that our righteousness comes completely from outside of us. It comes from Christ alone. And so we shouldn't be looking deep within ourselves to find something good. We should recognize what the Bible says about us and ask the question, what does the scripture say about me? It says that I'm a sinner. That's what's inside of me, is my sin. That's what's inside of you. But outside of us, God has provided Christ, a righteous Savior. Uh, John Phillips uh, talks about this first section when he talks about Abraham. He says that Paul talks about the founder of the Hebrew racial family. And then in talking about David, he references the founder of the Hebrew royal family. So he wants, he wants specifically his Jewish audience to see that God was doing something in the life of Abraham and of David that had nothing to do with the law. It had to do with faith. David talks about this blessing. Paul quotes from the Psalms. He quotes David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There's that, that language of creditors, right? And accounting. God is not going to take those sins into account. He's going to credit. He's going to bless someone unilaterally. And so we see, first of all, that the orchestration of this reckoning is completely of God. It's completely from God. I want to turn your attention to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. What does it look like to be reckoned? Paul says in verse 13, When you were dead in your trespasses and transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Listen to verse 14. You'll hear the language again. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that awesome? We only have that through Christ. We can only have that through Christ. He's the only one who has paid that debt. Secondly, we see the ordering of the reckoning. We notice first the orchestration. Then we notice the ordering of the reckoning. This is very important. He says in verse 9, is this blessing, referring back to the blessing that David's talking about, is this blessing then upon the uncircumcised, I'm sorry, upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. When God made his promise to Abraham, um, he told that, that future generations, men only, young men, boys only, were going to receive the sign of the covenant. But only men could receive this sign. It was a sign of circumcision. It was to signify that God had made a covenant with Abraham and with his heirs, with his children and grandchildren and so on. Now, what he's trying to say here is that with Abraham, Abraham was reckoned as righteous before, before the sign was instituted. So it was, his, it was by faith alone. It wasn't faith and the sign. It wasn't the sign first that led to faith. It was faith first and then receiving the sign 
that the faith was representing or represented by. Does that make sense? And so he's going to get into that in a minute. So it's really important that we see the order of this and this is why Paul is, is saying this. He wants them to understand just because you are a circumcised Jew does not mean you have hold of the promise of salvation. The same is true today for many people in our world who have been baptized or who have partaken of this supper. Just because you've been baptized or you've partaken of the supper, just because you've received the signs does not mean that you have salvation because salvation doesn't come through the signs. Salvation comes through the Savior alone, by faith alone. And these ordinances are to signify something, uh, something spiritual. Alright? But the signs don't come before. The signs come after. And so he says, he asks this question. Is the blessing upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? He says, for we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised, you get the timing, the ordering. He asks the question, when was he reckoned as righteous? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then he answers his own question. Paul does that a lot. Okay? He asks rhetorical questions and he answers the question. And he says, not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. And he received, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was uncircumcised. So Paul, or I'm sorry, uh, Abraham had faith in God's promise before he ever received the sign. And the Bible says, his faith was reckoned to him by God as righteousness. This is really important. And then he says, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And that he would be the father of those who have received the sign of circumcision and who also are of faith. So you can be someone who's received the sign or not received the sign. Jesus is the point. Faith in Christ is the point. But it's faith first. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through 12 confronts the Pharisees as they come to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. John the Baptist or John the Baptizer he was baptizing in the Jordan River and people would come to him to be baptized and he would talk to them about repentance. This is a baptism of repentance. Okay? And some Pharisees came and he he perceived that their intentions were not at all pure. And he asked them a question. He says, he calls them, first of all, a bunch of, he calls them sons of snakes. A bunch of baby vipers. And he says, who warned you about the coming judgment? And then he says this. He says, and don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, why would he say that? Because evidently, that's what many of them claimed. We have Father Abraham. Okay? And... John says, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because God can, if God wants sons, he can raise up from these stones, sons of Abraham. As a matter of fact, that's what he did with Abraham. He took a stone and he raised it up. And he called it and he sent it. There's nothing in Abraham that makes him special. It's God's election, it's God's choosing. Abraham responded in faith. And so should we. Circumcision 
Paul says, does not make you a child of Abraham. And that's what John the Baptist was saying. It's faith. Faith is what makes you a child of Abraham. In verse 12, we see the steps of faith. He says, he would be the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So the ordering of the reckoning is very important. Uh, today there are many people in our world who uh, get baptized as infants, sprinkled as babies or baptized as babies or before ever exercising faith. And just a little historical context there. When did that start happening? Um, large, massive baptisms of, of adults, children, armies. Uh, you can trace the different, different errors throughout uh, church history, human history. Uh, most scholars uh, agree, definitely Protestant evangelical scholars agree, that when you look through church history um, up to the New Testament, 1st century AD, you do not find infant baptism until, until about 300 AD and you see uh, the coalescence of church and state under Constantine the emperor. And then in about 800 AD, there was a Frankish king named Charlemagne who was baptized by Pope Leo out of Rome. And subsequently, thousands upon thousands of his soldiers were baptized as well. And there's no testimony that they ever actually expressed faith in Jesus. It was just, this is a Christian, we want to Christianize this nation, so we're going to baptize all these people. So you have all these people, scores of people, men, women, and children, receiving a sign of faith that they didn't actually possess. And then what actually got uh, ingrained into the Roman Catholic Church, the Western Church, was uh, infant baptism as a means of grace. And then also other churches from the Reformation, Reformed churches, Lutheran churches, many of which would continue that practice of infant baptism because it was such a scandalous thing to question infant baptism according to Scripture because once you started telling people that they, because of their lack of faith and bearing fruit in their life, were really not, were really not Christian, when you question their Christianity, you also question their citizenship of the state because to be a citizen of England back then or Germany meant also that you were a Christian. And so marriages were called Christian, baptisms were called Christian, and if you wanted to be a citizen of a state, you had to be baptized. And so, why would people put off citizenship until adulthood? They would baptize their children and infants at a very early age. And then they would hope to see some type of confirmation in the future that that child became a believer. But many times that wouldn't come. But as Protestants in the late 16th and early 17th century began to recognize that there was a major disconnect, that there was a church full of non-believers, and they didn't know why. Why are so many of our church members living in sin? Oh, well, how did they become church members? Because we baptized them when they were eight days old. And so they're a part of the church, yet they live ungodly lives. And so then, 
In the 17th century, you started getting independent churches breaking away from the state churches. They said, we're looking in Scripture and we see that the church in Scripture is composed of believers. People who have given public professions of faith. And they could be 8 years old when they do that. They could be 98 years old when they do that. Anywhere in between. But they're giving public profession of their faith. So the implications of verse 9 through 12 are huge today in our church and in society. And we are a believer's church. We are a believing church. Um, and so we baptize people who express individ as individuals publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. Their personal faith in Jesus Christ. Because faith comes first and then the sign comes after. Alright, now verse 13. He says, The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void or empty, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. So finally we see the outcome of the reckoning. What is the outcome? In verse 13 and 14 it shows us the role of the law and the limits of the law. By God showing us this in his word, he's, he's showing us the role of the law and the limitations of the law. It also shows the way that we should see ourselves by the law. He says in verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, he's saying, look, if, if the law makes you an heir of the promise, okay, if that's how it works, then faith means nothing. There, there's no need to have faith. Right? Because you're a worker of the law. You, you do things according to the law. And so he goes, he hearkens back basically uh, to verse 5. If you go back to verse 5, he compares someone who, who works for their wages. Have you ever had a boss like that? Who like when you go to get your paycheck, it's like, you're doing them a it's like they're doing you a favor to pay you for what you earned? Man, I had a boss like that once. It drove me nuts. Show up to the boss on Friday. You're like, okay, where's my check? I got a family to feed. Like, oh, I got to pay you, I guess. It's like, I'm pretty sure I earned my keep this week. Paul says in verse 5, The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. See, if you're, if you're looking to God for what you deserve, that's not faith. That's works. God doesn't give the promise of his Savior based upon works. He does that according to faith. So that's what Paul's coming back to in verse 14. That's the outcome of this idea of reckoning, of when God reckons us. We, we realize, we should realize, that, oh, that's the way this works. I, I will always be singing the song Amazing Grace in my heart for as long as I live. That will never get old. I never graduate from grace to works. Ever. And my faith never changes from faith to works. Paul confronts the church in Galatia on this. He says, you've, you've begun by grace and by faith. And are you seeking to be perfected by works? You've begun by the Spirit. Are you seeking to be perfected by the law? That will never happen. Don't jump ship. And then verse 15, the law brings about wrath. That's what the law brings. It brings wrath. It brings God's wrath because we cannot measure up to the law. So 
So these are the things that it shows us. This is the outcome of the reckoning. It shows us how shaky and unsure and risky living by the law can be. It doesn't mean that that we're lawless and we look at the law with disdain. No, it's, it's beautiful. But it's beautiful because it shows us that we're sinners and it points us to Christ, our Savior, who is ours by faith and by faith alone. So when you stand before God at judgment, on judgment day, and the book is opened, will your name be found? Will it be written that you are one who by faith alone believed God's promise of salvation through His Son Jesus by taking up your own cross, denying yourself, and following Him? The only way you'll be received into heaven on that day, the Bible says, will not be by your own account, will not be by your own works, but by Christ's work alone on your behalf, credited to your account. It's not only so on the, the moment you believe, but on every day after that. So I hope God's Word challenges you today and encourages you to rest upon Christ, to depend upon Christ, and to know that everything that we have as believers is all in Christ. That we are reckoned as righteous through Him and no one else. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace through Your Son, Jesus. Thank You, God, that uh, You reveal to us in Your Word uh, that You reckon as righteous anyone and everyone who will forsake themselves, who will confess their sins, repent of their sin, and turn to you and accept your Son, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. Let it be true of everyone here today and all those listening online. In Jesus' name, 